Hey there, and welcome to another episode of the Simple Pin Podcast. I'm your host, Kate All. Today is part two of our summer story series, and I am so excited to introduce you to today's guest. She is somebody that I know in person. Um, A couple years ago, I decided to join Entrepreneurs Organization, and I was placed in a forum. And Brenda was in my forum. And throughout the last, over the last two years, I've had the ability and the privilege to walk alongside her as she has navigated post-pandemic and recession and hiring and labor shortages as a physical business owner. And not only has this enriched my life as an online business owner with this piece of empathy and understanding that I never would have had, but it's allowed me to see that there is a common thread for all of us that we have to work through as entrepreneurs, as business owners, regardless of if our physical, if we have a physical location or an online location. So Brenda's going to walk us through like her story and how she got started and then what it's been like to be the owner of a brewery through all of these things. And I am so excited that you get to listen to this because I've had a front row seat and now you just get a little bit of a chapter of that and get to hear her love of food and her love of just this brewery and its impact on the local community. So before we dive into that, I want to let you know that July is our Christmas in July month where we are helping you kick up your Pinterest marketing a notch and really dive into um, getting prepped for Q3 and Q4 with your Pinterest marketing. And Pinterest has grown 7% over the last year. And we are so excited about that growth, which means that your would-be buyers are shopping on the platform for your product and they are searching for your content. And we want to help you get in front of them. So if you're ready to hand off your Pinterest marketing to our team, we are ready to take that off off your plate. So go to simplepinmedia.com slash services to set up a free call. This is not a strategy call. This is a discovery call. And we're offering offering $200 off our accelerator package this month if you book a call before the end of July. Also, if that service doesn't fit you, our discovery call team can help you figure out another service where we're offering 20% off that service as well. So I think one of the biggest things to think about before you book that discovery call is how does Pinterest marketing benefit your business? And do you have the time and the energy to invest in it in Q3 and Q4 when traffic and sales are at its highest on Pinterest? If not, we want to help you figure out a way to make Pinterest a priority and make it really an important revenue stream for your business. So go to simplepinmedia.com slash services or scroll down below in your podcast app. Alrighty, let's dive into today's episode with my friend Brenda, who owns Little Beast Brewery. You're listening to the Simple Pen Podcast, Pinterest for business advice that goes down smooth and easy. Here's your host, Kate All. Hey, Brenda, welcome to the Simple Pen Podcast. Hello there. Thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you. You're like colliding of worlds for me today. It's like in real life business owner combined with like all the people who I know on the online world. And I'm so excited for this conversation because 
as you and I talked before, this is just a really great way for people to see a window into, I guess, physical business owners, like those who have a physical location, which we don't talk a lot about on this podcast. Mm -hmm. So I'm super excited about that. So let's start with um, like a non-typical question that we're starting with for the summer series, which is... um, when did you first believe, understand, maybe whatever word you want to use, that you were an entrepreneur? Well, that is a good question. Um, I, you know, an old example that goes back to, I think it was maybe junior high. And I don't, I don't know if this really relates to it, but there's something that I always loved about making something and selling mm-hmm. it. And I used to, I had got a loom and I got really into beading and I made bracelets with everyone's name. <laughs> I would like, Beat yes. people's names into it, and then I sold them, and I had this like you know this book, a ledger essentially um, that I had kept um, all my uh, business transactions in, and so you know there were kind of little glimpses of stuff like that when I was younger. Um, but to be honest with you, I I think I I don't know if I really fit the archetype of an entrepreneur. And sometimes I convince myself that I'm an entrepreneur, even though I've owned this business now since 2017. I'd even started one before it um, that I eventually had to close because it just was not working prior to that. I think I struggle with it because I do not really consider myself much of a risk taker. Mm. And I feel like a lot of times the conversation about you know serial entrepreneurs are folks that are really comfortable with risk and that I don't really fit that mold. So mm-hmm. um, I think I, I definitely bring other skills and inspiration to uh, that role. But um, if we're talking about sometimes the conversation about, about the typical entrepreneur, I don't know. I'm not sure if I am. Yeah. Which I think is a lot of... I have resonated with that as well because I'm not a risk taker either. And I feel like in so much of our world, you're right. There's these people who are like, yeah, I'm going to cannonball into the deep end. And you and I are not cannonball types. We're like, we've got to ask questions. We've got to make sure we have a plan. And what's cracking me up about you selling your bracelets is you had a ledger. Like you were all prepared to know exactly how much you were making. And you were like, I'm going to record this transaction and I'm going to have all the facts. I'm going to have all the facts. Exactly. And that's what I do really. I mean, before I, I take any, you know, big financial risks, I do a lot of analysis and some might say to the point of paralysis, <laughs> it's, it's what provides comfort for me to, to know like, what does the worst case scenario look like? And what am I really entering into? Um, and, you know, at a certain point, you do have to just put one foot before the next and go for it. Yeah. And I've certainly done that. Um, but I would be lying if I said that I, you know, just kind of dive into the deep end, like you said. I mean, there's folks that, we both know that start business after business simultaneously. Mm. And I can't even imagine, frankly, managing that because I, I think about all the details. I'm such a detail person that just, I, it doesn't even seem feasible to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I agree. I'm like, how do you not know all the facts? And they're like, I just don't. I exactly. just go for it. I'm like, okay, here we go. I have actually, to- <laughs> I want to give you a little bit of credit though, because you know, thinking about my business model compared to your business model. And one of the things that I, I, you know, will allude to a little bit in the intro is that you and I are a part of an EO group, entrepreneurs organization. And this group is a mix of business owners who, like you said, have all different types of businesses and have all different types of personalities. 
And when I think of the risk that I bear in doing an online business compared to your risk when it comes to having a brewery, I mean, let's talk about that process. I mean, you had walked me through it like 2016, you're dreaming of opening this business. Like, walk me through your fact finder process. I had 26 years of dreaming about this business in particular, but. I came to it with a high level of competence and confidence okay. in what I was doing. And my partner and husband brings that same sort of experience and um and kind of confidence to the to the business. So my career started in the late 90s in um San Francisco and I had a dream of becoming a specialty food buyer, which is very esoteric and <laughs> and, I, and very I, niche. I'll give you the short story of how that how that came to be. But I I, uh, I studied business taught in Spanish um, at University of Colorado, and it brought me to Spain where I lived for a few years. I fell in love with ingredients, really, and and, and food food ways. And after that, I I moved to Florence, Italy, and went to culinary school to study Italian food. Italian cooking. Um, and so when I came back home, I actually kind of came back to what a lot of, you know, graduates, the question that they come to, which is, well, what do I, what am I going to do now? I mean, I, I went to culinary school, not to necessarily work in a kitchen. It was more just from an undying passion that I needed to um, execute on. And so this was in the late nineties. Like I said, e-commerce had just started. I mean, it was absolutely revolutionary that you could get on a computer and buy specialty food from Spain Mm -hmm. that I missed and that I wanted to share with my parents. And so my dad simultaneously, my dad was listening to NPR in which a fellow was interviewed and his job was a freelance forager. Sounds cool. Doesn't it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we discovered Dean and DeLuca um, Mm. and they opened up their their web store. And so we bought some Spanish jamón. And it was in that moment that my dad said, well, why don't you be the person who buys this food? You know, the person you can you can travel to Europe, hopefully, or all over the world and and, um, bring these ingredients to the United States. And I thought that is amazing. And I can't believe that's a job. And um, so I put a resume into an e-commerce, it was specialty food and cookware e-commerce called um, Tavolo in the Bay Area. And I got a job right away. Wow. Yeah, it was kind of amazing. And it also was, I think, like a good testament to like, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. Before I did that, I took a job at the trade at the um, the trade office here in, in Portland. I took an internship to learn about importing and exporting. And then I also took a job for In Good Taste, which was a specialty food store and did cooking classes and whatnot. And I worked in the kitchen mm. and I was really focused on, I'm going to be a specialty food buyer. And it happened very quickly. And it also, I think, was circumstances of the time. I mean, the late nineties was booming. E-commerce was just, you know, kind of becoming at the apex of um, its infancy. And so there was a lot of opportunities. So I'm just going to fast forward because it obviously... Yeah. To go 20 years forward, um, I remained in that career, um, getting a job, keeping a job and purchasing, um, especially while not being in a large city became a much more elusive uh, task. But I did end up transitioning into sales. And um, I worked kind of like all along the spectrum of the specialty food industry. So I represented makers. So as a national sales manager, ultimately for Olympic Provisions towards the end of my career, who um, Olympia Provisions, who makes a wonderful charcuterie here in Portland. Wonderful. 
Um, and then I represented, I was a regional sales rep for a couple of um, wonderful cheesemakers out of Northern California, uh, Laura Chanel and Marin French. Um, I, before that, I worked in distribution. I worked for a specialty meat and game distributor, which was a whole new wow. category and super interesting for me. I worked for a Spanish food importer. Um, so I, I really got to see every level in that chain of distribution from mm. purchasing, from retail. Oh, I also forgot to mention, I got a job as a specialty food buyer at Dean and DeLuca and early in my career. Wow. Well, full circle moment, right? Amazing. Totally. And that was actually not that that, that, that far after that, that initial dream. I lived in San Francisco mm. and I was on the buying team at, at Dean and DeLuca for their corporate um, buying team. And it was an absolute dream come true. It was exactly yeah. what I had wanted to do. And it was really incredible. What an amazing experience so, that you have all these pieces. Like, I mean, I just want to stop there. Cause I mean, that's 20 years of amazing thing, amazing opportunities and living your dream. And not only do you get to see how the process works, but you get to like work with the thing that you love, which is food. And you get to help those people who are makers get that into the hands and have the same exact experience you had when you're first like, I can buy Spanish jamón. Like I want people to experience this exactly. as well. What a cool gift that has been in your yeah, life. It really, it was. I, when I reflect on it, it just, it really does fill me with a lot of joy. It was an incredible experience and it, you know, and it, it continues in a different way today. I mean, I think that one thing that I've learned through those years is really how to bring product to market. Mm. I really love um, a tangible product, particularly one you can eat or drink. Yes, <laughs> that's for sure. I just love it. And I love branding and I love, you know, knowing where to meet the the buyer of that product, um, how to reach them. Um, I just, it's something that I've always really loved. And so when my husband and I decided to start this brewery, um, it was... For a couple of reasons. One, he'd been he'd been brewing professionally since the late 90s, or actually mid-90s. He's wow. in his 30th year brewing right now. And he makes exceptional beer. And I will say that I would not have gotten into this business if I did not feel that confidence in his quality of product. Because mm. all throughout my career, I've I've only worked with impeccable products, something mm. that I can like really get behind and really get excited about and then share that story. Um, and that was kind of the framework that we were coming from. Um, I knew how to, I, I always kind of call it front of house and back of house just because of years in food and food service, um, adjacent, but, you know, he manages the production, um, he makes great beer and I'm kind of responsible for everything that comes after that in the sales channel for how, you know, how to, how to, uh, brand it and how to get it into the market. Right. And so back to that, like you know, risk, um, averse, I, I had going into it. I, we really had those mutual, the mutual confidence on both sides of the business hmm. to get into this. And I, you know, honestly don't think I probably would have without it, but I will say that many people do and many people are successful, but that's just me. <laughs> right. Right. Which I think is important to yeah. call out because I would say there's many business owners that feel like there's something wrong with them because they don't fit the archetype of it quote unquote, what we see a traditional entrepreneur. And so yeah. when they ask the questions, they're like, but what is, 
why can't I take this risk? Or what is wrong with me? Sometimes instead of just realizing, no, this is how I'm wired. I just need, this is how I work. It's not going to be like somebody else. It's going to be how I work. Exactly. Exactly. I have seen all sorts of um, different backgrounds that have gotten into this business or in the business of specialty food. And they're diverse. And it doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it just because it makes me comfortable to open up a business with basically 20 to 30 years experience in relatively the same, you know, um, framework that does not mean that someone else couldn't succeed just as well. And without any of that experience, right. Well, personal mindsets, I think. And go back just a little bit. So you said you had another business before this. Can you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So it was called foodshed.com. Um, I, I opened it in 2009 and the concept was, um, it was going to be similar. It was similar to an Etsy for food, but it it actually had more components built into it that number one, Etsy doesn't fit that comparison, but also were, were rather complex. So one, it was a marketplace for food makers to sell their product direct, um, across the United States. Um, as I, as I, you know, grew in my career, I started, uh, like I said, in the late '90s, with a fascination really about Spanish and Italian and really European food because that's where I had lived and ate the most. Um, and that is where we were in the late '90s in specialty food. We really looked outside of the United States for ingredients. Things really started to shift, um, and I, you know, was watching it the whole time. And I think I was also just questioning to myself, like why are we buying lentils from France when we have beautiful lentils from the Northern part of the United States? Or why are Italian hazelnuts um, what we get so excited about when Oregon grows some of the best? And why aren't we having these conversations? Like, why don't we even realize our um, foodways here in in the United States that are exquisite and Mm -hmm. to be celebrated? And they're generally not um, that well-known amongst American citizens, essentially, and eaters. Um, so in the early 2000s, I think I was kind of starting to ask these questions. And in you know 2009, I started that website and it was a place for people to find all of these American um, made high quality um, crafted foods, mostly ingredients, some value added though, like, you know, perhaps like a delicious candy bar. Um, mm. And there were two other components about it. I I also weaved in storytelling and recipes. So wrote a lot of articles about uh, the stories of food throughout the United States um, and recipes that were using those, those ingredients. And then I also wanted to use all of the, da- the data that was um, inherent to the movement throughout that website to create a system for food makers to sell their product across the United States. So there was a component built into this that had a map and it could show you if you wanted to find this particular ingredient in your area, it it had a map of all the stores where you could find it. Um, And that would, you know, that went for the entire, all the stores where they were sold in the United States. And so it was kind of to aggregate that data and use that data for, to, to give to small food makers. So they knew where to sell their product when they wanted to expand to different regions or states. Long story short, Kate, it, that it's complex. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I bet it was a one man show. It was 2009 when really all of these automations 
And plugins to websites were not what they are now. It was super costly. It was all custom made. It was very expensive. And I started a technology company and Mm -hmm. I hadn't even realized it. Yep. (laughs) And it would have taken way more money. I mean, probably millions more than I had. Um, And it's not really what I set out to do. And so um, I ultimately decided to close it. Yeah. But I will say, I've seen other models that do have the funding and do have the teams that I love, which is, for example, Food 52. That is kind of like yep. almost very similar to the concept of what I was trying to do on my lonesome. Um, and I love their website um, and I love what they've created. Um, there's also a website called FAIR, F-A-I-R-E. Hmm. And I just discovered it. And it's also very similar to what I was trying to do. Um, and again, with a lot more um, funding and and uh, uh, built-in technologies that can support it. Um, but it's essentially uh, like a wholesale. It's a, it's a place where food makers can go to direct wholesale their product all around the world. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. So um, that's what Food Shed was. Yeah. Well, you know, and that... When I hear you talking about that, I think of, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, and how I built this when he asked at the end, like, was it luck or was it by your like, you know, strategy or (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly. Your work, exactly. Luck or work. And I think to your point, you were trying to build something kind of well before it's time when it would have been easier, right? It's like, sure. yeah. like you know, we you, you're right. We have plugins now. We have easy connectors. The tech is so much easier. You can find the amount of people who do tech and understand it is so much more robust. Mm-hmm. So it's like kind of this right place, right time. And you are working in this time where you're, it's kind of like pushing a boulder uphill, but yes. you had this idea and it was so amazing, but it was like nothing was aligning at the time. To yeah. really combine, you had all the work, right? But the luck of the moment really wasn't there to kind of combine the two. Yeah, that's true. Which is, you know, I look back at that sometimes and I th- even think that about my business. Like I kind of got in at the time when I got in. I don't know if I started it today, if it would look the same way just mm-hmm. because of competition or all these things that are happening that are out of my control. Yeah. And so I think it's just interesting to think about that. So, okay, so you're done with Food Shed. And then um, what's the gap between when you start thinking about starting at the brewery? Well, in between that timeline, I did work. That's when I worked for Olympic Provisions for the cheesemakers for years. Okay. Uh, It's probably like, I mean, because so I started Food Shed in 2009, probably closed it in 2011-ish. And then we opened the brewery in 2017 and I joined in 2018. Okay. So talk to me a little bit about that beginning process of opening up the brewery. How I think of how was your how was your fact finder, your risk averseness during that time? Because that's a lot to invest in material, I guess, right? Like you need all of this big, massive, I don't know the terms for it. You do, you know. Yeah. Equipment. Yes, exactly. Totally. And we found a really great opportunity because yes, you are correct. Um, the the capital um outlay for starting a brewery is tremendous. Um, you know, anywhere from probably 500,000 to a million, maybe just, um, and that is really intimidating and it can be very difficult for people to get started without deep pockets. Um, but there are ways, um, and certainly there's a lot of unique and creative, um, 
ways to go about it. So for us, we ended up renting a a brew, the the back half of a brew pub, the brewery portion basically, that wasn't being used. So a brew pub had opened in Beaverton, quickly went out of business. Um, a restaurateur uh, took over the space, but had no interest in the brewery part mm. and just wanted to use the restaurant part. So we subleased the equipment. Super smart. Um, yeah, it was great because you know. So essentially, you know, what we needed to put into that immediately. Um, in terms of capital was way less. Mm-hmm. Very it just, I mean, it wasn't it basically it was it was not nothing, but it was nearly nothing compared to what it would cost to start a brewery. Right. And he was probably delighted to have y'all use it because he's like, oh, well, I'm not going to do anything with it. It was just empty. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Some people will start like in their garage um, or some people might start with um, doing like an alternating proprietorship where they work under um, in someone else's brewery using their equipment to create their brand. Um, So there's different ways to go about it. Um, We didn't, you know, we didn't come to this with massive amounts of dollars to put into it. So for us, that was the, the best way to get into it and not have to um, put forth a tremendous capital investment from the beginning. Right. Okay. So I'm going to fast forward a little bit. So you've got the brewery off the ground, this great connection with being able to, you know, like sublease equipment. Three years later, we hit the pandemic and we hear all this conversation during the pandemic about how, you know, liquor sales are going through the roof. There's all of these kind of things happening to not only people in wine, but in beer and spirits. What was your experience as you were beginning to navigate this? Plus we're in Portland, right? So you have a tasting room. Nobody can come in to taste. Yeah. Walk me through all of that. Yeah. Wow. What a journey. Um, yeah. You know, obviously we were, I think the thing that was very interesting about the experience and kind of the trauma of it all is that we were all participating in it. Yeah. Right. It was collective and we perhaps had different um, roles in our lives, whether it be like a healthcare worker or a pub owner. Right. So we all have different experiences um, with it. And for mine, I think like many of us from the beginning, I, I this was like my, my first pandemic. Um, I was like, I don't know how long this is going to last. Yes, exactly. It's not two weeks. We know that now. Right? Yeah. It was like, we were like hugging goodbye. Like see you in a few weeks. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and we also immediately, like, I don't even know one thing that I have discovered about myself um, through the years, whether it be professional, just personal, that I actually perform um, at a very high ability in times of stress and um, mm. uh, emergency. So my, I became, I, I do become uh, quick, uh, quick minded and quick to act and and can really kind of like deduce things. And of course, in the, in the, in a pandemic, there was, did I do things all correctly? Of course not. Um, but one thing that we did right away is knowing that the beer garden was going to close, we started delivering beer to people's houses. And we started doing that the day after they closed down the city. Wow. That's that's pretty quick action. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm also like not afraid to get in the trenches. So like, yeah, 
and neither is is Charles, my husband. Like, like we're right there in it with everyone else. Like, we're not mm-hmm. just directing other people to do it. Like, we're doing it. And so we essentially would um, put together um, a route for every our very small team, and we would just bang out the orders individually after like after we finish the day, say at at five or six, and and then deliver to people's homes. So that's one thing that we did right away. With the beer garden, it was tremendously stressful because it was a situation where you are pulled pulled in a lot of different ways where you want to protect your staff, right? And and at at this point too, we don't even know, like we're thinking it's airborne. So like I'm a step away from a hazmat suit. Like I also know, like how do I protect our, our staff who also wants to actually you know, maybe not all of them, but in the case of ours, most of them really wanted to get out there and work. And how do I give them hours? How do I get it? How do I keep it open? And also, how do we get income, you know, coming into the business? Because the reality is, is I, this, you know, you're just basically fighting to survive. Yeah. So there's all these kind of um, inputs that are really stressful at the time. And um, we, I think we opened back up in, in July and, you know, many thanks to our staff at the beer garden who was patient and, you know, had to deal with a, a, a pretty high stress situation just from the general public being stressed out and then being stressed out and no one really knowing what's going on. Mm. You know, we, we put out, we kind of did, I think what ultimately most everyone did that had a retail space, which is perhaps overkill, but like started using QR codes, put up like a, we even put like a plexiglass essentially around the bar area. So there was no like, you know, mm-hmm. germ spreading across the bar and into our, and of course we wore masks and we had hand sanding and we, we had all the distancing and all that stuff. We put up tents. We were actually really lucky because we had a lot of outdoor space and a tiny indoor space. It's an old craftsman house at the beer garden. Yeah. And so we put up tents for people to sit in year round. And I think we were also like, why didn't we do that two years ago? Yeah, <laughs> totally. You know, like there's some things that that were a result of it that were like, oh, yeah, yeah, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. Um, even QR codes, frankly, I mean, I know that a lot of, or at least some people don't love ordering from QR codes, but in the, in in our case, I think it has, we right now do a, a mixed service where you can order from a Q, sit down at a table and order from a QR code, or you can walk up to the bar, or we also come out to the table. Um, but we used to have a situation where it would be like a line of people out a bar you know, in a very small space. And frankly, I can't stand when I walk into a place and there's like a line of 20 people that I have to stand yes. one small thing. I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> you <laughs> love the QR codes. Yeah. So like now you can just go sit down and order from a QR code and will be brought out to you right away. Yeah. And if you want to stand at that bar, you can do that too. So there were some good things that came out of it um, for sure. Um, I think I was really surprised. I, I was essentially in like total survival mode. And again, Mm -hmm. I think that is something that I oddly excel at, um, is being on my, you know, keeping on my toes and and being mentally sharp and knowing what to do, at least with the, uh, with the information that I have at the time. So, um, we, I really thought, I had no idea what to think, but I definitely thought like this could be the end. And so mm. our goal is just to survive. Um, we thankfully had put, we had started working with a mobile canner. So when we first started our business, we mostly did uh, 750 milliliter bottles, cork and cage of mixed culture uh, beers. 
So like Belgian style and sours and blended beers. Um, and we transitioned, we started to, I think we made our first um, kind of shorter processed sour beer in a can and a Saison in a can in 2019. And we worked with a mobile canner. So the good part was, is that we had an infrastructure in place. So we had a vendor, you know, that was coming to our place to, to can mobily. Um, and then we also had vendors in place to buy aluminum and, you know, mm. all the things that go into the, the can art, our designer for the labels and whatnot. So that was in place, even though it was a small part of our business moving into the pandemic. And then when the pandemic hit, I mean, I think we put out, we went from like two or three beers in a can to like 25. Wow. Holy it cow. Insane. Yeah. It, and did you see like quick side note here? As you're watching, as you're trying to pivot as fast as you can, and you see the advantages of like, you set the stage, right? Like you were kind of prepared. Yeah. What were you watching other breweries go through? Was it like some were falling apart? Some were kind of going the way that you guys were going? Yeah, the whole spectrum. I okay. Mean, whole spectrum. There was, there's some breweries, like much bigger breweries, for example, that sell um, that their product mix is heavily swayed towards draft. I mean, that's a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Right. Because draft is dead at that point temporarily, but draft is dead. Right. Because nobody can um, go in person. Exactly. And if you, if you've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of barrels output a year, you know, what I'm saying is if you're really yeah. big, brewery, it can be much harder to act fast and to be nimble mm-hmm. than a brewery our size. Um, but I also think that we were, we were definitely one, I think, Lakeham or Lakeham Brewery and ourselves were the first to distribute to deliver to people's homes like mm-hmm. immediately. That took people a much longer time, others to get much longer to get started with that. Um, really knowing, like kind of reading the room um, and and quickly, even though I I didn't realize I like it didn't occur to me that there would be such tremendous grocery sales. I mean, the, now that I think of it, I'm like, obvious. Of course, that seems obvious now. Mm-hmm. But it didn't occur to me how many people would be going to the grocery store and like hoarding. Yeah. Buying like way larger quantities than they normally would. Our grocery sales were, I mean, were were way up. And I didn't anticipate that even though I probably could have. And so essentially our goal was to fill that hole, just keep filling it, right? Fill the shelf, fill the shelf, fill the shelf, get a new beer, get in people's hands. Like it's all about grocery. It's all about beer in a can on a shelf and moving it. Right, right. And need that moment. And we did. And, you know, some, some folks did it fast. Some others took longer and it's hard to say, but I, I think all along the spectrum. Yeah. Well, I'm curious as, you know, this progresses along, like your meet the moment, meet the moment, fill the shelves, do all these, you're kind of in this mode when things start to lift and we start to come out of it. Mm-hmm. How, how are you doing as an owner switching gears as well, because there's something to be said for when we are in this emergency moment, we get to that panic mode, right? And sometimes we don't realize when we need to switch off of that because it's now all we know. What was that like for you? Um, well, I think one of the things was just burnout. Um, and I think that, you know, I think collectively a lot of people that were working during the pandemic and in many different industries can relate. Um, as a business owner, though, you can't walk away, right? Yeah. You're not like, I'm so burnt out. I'm going to take a few months <laughs> yes. off. Yes. Peace out, everybody. <laughs> going to Spain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like, well, suck it up. Like, it just there's You don't have that luxury of um, 
putting a timeout on your um, contribution to the company that you own. Um, so you need to really work through the burnout and try to find ways to find balance and and really focus on on that, honestly. Um, yeah. So uh, I think another result of it is, you know, meeting the moment at the time was what was called for. But I think from from our experience, it was almost easier to be in business and our business and 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 survive and thrive in 2020 and parts of 2021 than it was in parts of 2020 like the you know a large part of 2021 and 2022 yeah it became much harder uh nothing really made any sense it was hard to know what to anticipate like so for example when i told you get a beer in a can put it on a shelf and sell it that's really mm-hmm. simple I mean, yeah. right. But now that's, it's not as simple and you're trying to navigate like how to thrive in this post pandemic. And that has been a lot harder. And also you've not only saturated you and everyone else has saturated the shelf and saturated your brand portfolio. So, mm. you, it, you know, we can't, and you're burnt out. So yeah. like, we can't continue putting out that many new beers or new brands in a year. Do we kill? Right. I mean, there's no way. And so, and you're also dealing with a lot of labor. I mean, labor, labor, ugh, label. Oh my God, I can't speak. <laughs> no, it's okay. Labor, labor right? Shortages were yeah. one of the most difficult things to deal with um, towards the middle and the end of the pandemic. Any data, like for someone who's me, who's like data driven and likes to like see the story that data's telling me, well, just burn it up. It doesn't mean anything. Like just because your grocery sales were booming in 2020 you know, that's not a framework for the future. That's not a reality Mm. anymore. Yeah. And so when I reflect back, you know, our first, we started in 2017 and we were again, very, very small cork and cage, um, a very niche part of the market. And then we're really kind of getting uh, started and, and really starting to begin like seeing some growth and then boom, pandemic. And then after that, it's kind of like, how do you, how do you remake this in in the in intentionally? Yeah, <laughs> right. So kind of what we've been doing now is like I'm, we're putting EOS um, in place, mm-hmm. which has been, I think, fundamental to our just focus to really, really um, narrowing our focus and knowing where we want to spend our energy, so we're not working so hard um, for to kind of capture everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, to your point, you were in this like franticness, right? Of like pivot, pivot, pivot. And then what you just said was like, okay, everybody did that. Now the market's like saturated and we have to pull back. And with EOS implementation, it's like you're going towards infrastructure again. Like, okay, let's go back. Let's kind of pause, go back to the foundation and work on that. Exactly. Which is... Real tough too when it's hard to get people to come to work. <laughs> yes. Although right now I feel like that has in the last like six to eight months, it has that has gotten a lot better. And um we have a really great team right now. And and I it, you know, having a good team can really change how you mentally feel up to the task of being in business, honestly. 
Right. True. Exactly. And, you know, I've had a front row to a lot of this, obviously, since we met um, in 21 and kind of worked through a lot of this. And I just have to give you just so much credit for your, I think that fact finderness has really served you well to ask the question, okay, like what's next? What about this? And it's been so cool to watch you go through that despite these hard times. Cause I think it, well, selfishly, it helps me go like, okay, I'm not crazy. I'm experiencing, <laughs> even though we're in totally extreme opposite industries, yeah. we're still experiencing the same, same thing of burnout and what's next. And to what you said, you can look at your data from 20 or 21 and it doesn't mean anything anymore. Exactly. You can't, you can't take and learn lessons from it and go, I'm going to repeat this. It's like, I'm sorry, that's dead. You just, yeah, yeah, burn it. <laughs> that's pretty yeah. much the only thing it's good for. And yep. I just think that is something that even more people need to talk about because I still think there's more business owners that are trying to go back to the lessons they learned from that time mm-hmm. and apply them in the future. And you just can't. It's like, we're in a new learning time as to who we are as business owners, who we are as entrepreneurs. So I guess that would lead me to kind of wrap up with one of our last questions, which is, what do you see for yourself and your business over the next three years as you're, I guess, kind of coming up for air? You're coming above the wake a little bit. And mm-hmm. what does that look like? You know, I, I think one of my uh, great strengths is kind of the long vision. Um, and not necessarily that I can clearly define a specific goal in the far future, but that I can really focus on the present to affect the farther future. And by that, I mean, really working internally to be better, to be better at our systems, to be better as a team, to really know why we exist, why we're here, what we're good at, and how to communicate that. And it's never for me always been about like growth, growth, growth. Um, Again, maybe it's the risk adverse part. Maybe it's the I'm I'm kind of tired and it sounds exhausting. I'm not really sure. <laughs> yeah. But I just I I really I really take a lot of satisfaction and pride in just like improving. And it's kind of as simple as that for me. Like I I I think that we're great at what we do and that we can always be better. And so I kind of look at each department about like how can we be as as good as we can possibly be and like let's look inward and work on it and improve that way. And and let's be really intentional about our brand and what we're putting out there and um, know that we made the best product that we could possibly make and that people are enjoying it. So I love strategy. So there, you know, a lot of strategy comes within that, um, that kind of long term goal. Um, For us right now, it's really focusing on our direct, our direct community of, um, customers and buyers, basically. So mm-hmm. we self-distribute in Portland Metropolitan. And it, I think, is in many ways the most valuable um, part of our business, whether it be even direct, direct to consumer at our beer garden. But we that direct connection to us is really, really important. Um, mm-hmm. So looking externally to be like, when can we you know, find a new distributor in XYZ state? I, I don't care so much about that. Like I want to focus on our own backyard and in our own backyard as in like our four walls and how can we improve our company as we are. Yeah. And I always love when I go out and I see Little Beast Brewery up there on like the little board and I'm like, oh, 
little beast. There it is. (laughs) It's so great. Well, and I want to say this too, because um, one of the things that I remember distinctly us talking about was this idea of like knowing what you're really good at and going with that instead of trying to go outward. And I, it was a conversation we were having about sour beers and you guys are really good at sour beers. Mm -hmm. And like, sometimes there's this thing of saying like, why? Yeah, we're really good at it, but maybe there's other things or maybe we can go beyond it. And would you say that kind of applies to like trying to be here in Portland Metro, trying to find more people to be in the backyard? Have you had more thoughts about sour beers and kind of continuing to be known for that? Oh, yeah. That is our core focus. That's our niche. Um, Love it. And yeah, I mean, we 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 make them a little bit differently than than most others. Um, particularly our, our like, um, quicker process sour beers and they're, they're really delicious. And, and so I think that we're justifiably known for them. And I think that's great. And that's also our passion. So yes, I think that it's very distracting to try to be everything to everyone and it's exhausting. It's distracting. And I don't think it's mostly ineffective. Yeah. Such a great lesson. Brenda, thank you so much for just telling your story and for giving my listeners and you know the opportunity to hear what it's like for business owners that are out in physical locations and the things that you've had to work through and your love of food. And listen, Brenda makes the best lasagna I've ever had in my whole life. Like I dream of that lasagna all the time because <laughs> it was so amazing. Um but thank you, thank you, thank you for just sharing that. And if people just want to follow along, even if they're not here in the Portland area, or maybe if they're coming to visit, where can they go just to see, um, learn more about Little Beast and follow along? You may go to our website, which is littlebeastbrewing.com. And then the Little Beast Brewing is also the same handle for Instagram, Facebook, not on Twitter or anything else, but um, yeah. I love it. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story again. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.